This episode contains content that may be difficult to hear. Please check the show notes for more information. Listener discretion is advised. I remember coming out of the locker room and I'd see Jana on the one side, pregnant, I'm soon to be father. And on my other side, there's Graham James with all these junior hockey players. And my life was falling apart. Like I, you know, I was in and out of the the psych ward at the hospital, like suicide attempts and stuff. And I was at my breaking point and I just knew that if I will never be the father and the person that I want to be unless I deal with this. And I can't look at this because it's the first time that I'd seen him with other kids. I can't look at this and let it happen. And I had to do something. Sheldon Kennedy grew up on a dairy farm in Brandon, Manitoba, Canada. As a kid, he had a love for farming, and he had a love for the game of hockey. Life on the farm was stressful, and his father was an angry man. But watching Hockey Night in Canada on a Saturday night was a family event. At 14, Sheldon left home and never looked back. He excelled in junior hockey and went on to be drafted by the Detroit Red Wings in 1998. But by the time he scored his first goal in the NHL, his love for hockey had already disappeared. In 1996, Sheldon came forward with allegations of sexual abuse against his former junior hockey league coach, Graham James, a prominent figure in the hockey world. Graham pleaded guilty in 1997 to sex offenses against Sheldon and two others. Before coming forward, Sheldon suffered in silence for over a decade. Feelings of shame, guilt, fear, and anxiety led him to self-medicating and thoughts of suicide. For many years, he spent time in and out of rehab and psychiatric facilities, all while trying to lead a normal life as a husband, a father, and a professional athlete. From the Players' Tribune, I'm former National Hockey League goaltender Corey Hirsch. And I'm psychiatrist Dr. Diane McIntosh. Welcome to Blindsided. Mental health, sports, and life. Sheldon, such an honor, really, to meet you. So thank you so much. And I know you've been friends with Corey for a long while, but I'm really grateful you've taken the time to meet today. Nice to meet you, too. Thank you. What was it like growing up in your house? Growing up in our house, well, I was born in Brandon, Manitoba. My, And then we went and moved in way up north uh, for a couple of years. But basically, by the time uh, kindergarten hit, we were on the farm. We, we dairy farmed uh, as a family. There was a lot of stress in our home. Um, there was a lot of anxiety. My father was, uh, was an angry man. So... The relationship, you know, we we weren't modeled with great loving relationship between mother and father, uh, I can tell you that. And then, you know, basically, you know, I grew up till I was 14 and then I left home and, and uh, went off and haven't been back since. When you think back, when did you start playing hockey and when did you feel like, okay, this is for me? I started playing when I was probably four on an outdoor rink in Winnipeg. My brother was playing, older brother. So I always tagged around with my older brother. And I, because of our, you know, our life on the farm, we could only go. So I always played with the older kids. That's what my, I always grew up playing. I was the, the runt, right, of the, of the, <laughs> of the team. I was never the best player on the team. And, and, uh, 
So, you know, we just loved it. I mean, that's what we did. We played road hockey till the the streetlights came on, and then we played tournaments every weekend and played road hockey in between, and, and that's just what we did. And and I don't, you know, I just, I think it was watching. It was what we did, like, on a Saturday night. I mean, yeah. we, we would sit and watch the hockey game, and, and it was a family event, and and it was a, and I think it was part of bonding with, with our dad at the time. It was probably the only time we had to maybe bond with him. And, you know, I think I, I fell in love with the game by following along behind my big brother, and then, you know, I guess it just, the path started. When did you realize that you may have a special gift? Oh, I don't know if I ever realized that because I was never best best player in the team. I guess, you know, I guess, you know, that's why it's, you know, the Graham Jameses in these small towns had so much power. They came and said, oh, do you know what, Mrs. Kennedy and Mr. Kennedy, your son has a chance to go all the way. And then it's like, oh, my God, what do I have to do? Right? In a lot of cases, that's the way it is. And so you think of the power that just a scout like that has in these small towns. And so, you know, I think it was when scouts started talking to mom and dad and you're thinking, oh, well, geez, maybe I might be able to play junior or something. But yeah. but I think I, I never got a chance. I think I was too young to actually really get to the point to feel that I had a chance to make it um, before all the other stuff started going on. Corey and I have talked to lots of your former colleagues about their experiences being young men leaving home so early, including Corey. When you left home, did you feel ready for that? Was it a was it an, a good thing, an exciting thing? You know, and I, I don't. I think I've talked to Corey a little bit about this, and and I seem to keep going back to this point because lots of people want to talk to me about hockey and my hockey experience and, you know, and, and what it was like. But unfortunately, um, you know, before I left home, uh, I was groomed by uh, Graham James, who's a serial sexual predator. And uh, I was in the in the early stages of uh, five-year-long, uh, you know, repetitive sexual uh, abuse cycle at the hands of Graham uh, before I left home. So, I don't know how I felt, to be honest with you. Um, I don't know if I can put my finger on how I felt. I was a little bit numb. Actually, not a little bit. I was a lot numb. I think I'd probably checked out. I felt probably that I didn't want to be there, but I didn't know what else to do um, because... I couldn't comprehend what was happening to me in my own head, which which made it very difficult uh, for me to explain it to anybody else. And I'd never heard of uh, any of this ever before. And uh, I think I went from a kid that, you know, I think, you know, even though we had some troubles at home and there was a lot of stress and anxiety in our home, I did have a love for for the game of hockey and I had a love for farming. I, I, I loved to farm and I love to be out there, but all of that had kind of gone away by the time I left. So I can't really put my finger on uh, that excitement that maybe others felt. You were just 14 when Graham James started his abuse and you used the term groom. He was grooming you even before you left home, which can mean different things for different people. What was your experience with that? What does that mean to you? Well, I mean, I when I grew up, 
what we heard was, be careful of the white van that's cruising around town because they're going to get you. Basically, right? Like, you know, lack of a better words. But, I mean, basically, Stranger that's danger, what right? that's was our perception. I mean, our perception was people that hurt kids wore masks, snuck around at night, and uh, lurked. And that was not the case. I mean, Graham James was a very, you know, he groomed my, my mom and my dad and my brother and anybody around me to be able to get access. So he was nice. He gained trust. It's basically he he got his power and got access uh, through manipulation and trust and and then betrayed that trust. And, and so in my case, I was isolated from my family. Graham put himself in a position to be, be the only trust trusted adult in my life, basically. Um, so when I was away from home, I felt very alone. And and anybody that had any questions or concerns about Sheldon, and it even got to the point of, with my parents, I mean, you know, they were, because of my mom and dad splitting, uh, mom thought it was great that finally Sheldon has a, a good male mentor in his life. Uh, meanwhile, uh, you know, obviously she didn't know what was going on. Or she would have helped for sure, and dad was just out of the picture. So um, it was... You know, you talk about feeling trapped, but it was the total opposite of what I had thought somebody that might hurt a child would be. You know, when I look back, the grooming piece of it was critical, and I think there's lots of signs in the grooming process that uh, we can pick up on that can maybe nip, you know, the actual physical uh, incidences from happening. I think people have that thought that you can pick out these despicable human beings. They look like monsters, and in fact, they don't. They look like everybody else, but they're highly manipulative. And I wonder, when you reflect on on this, Sheldon, were you vulnerable because there was a lot of stress and anxiety at home? Your dad was an angry man, so you, you were looking as a young man for a strong role model, and sexual abusers tend to pick up on those needs. Do you think that you were vulnerable in that way? For sure. And if I look at, you know, all of the victims, uh, the victims that have, not all of them, but I mean the victims that have have come forward with their stories, uh, the, the other six players that Graham abused, they all came from, for the most part, uh, a broken family or a family where he could swoop in and be a savior. I mean, we, we, you know, we can't forget that Graham James was Hockey Man of the Year the Hockey News Hockey Man of the Year. And uh, that was after the bus accident that we were on. But, you know, but still, I mean, he positioned himself to be, you know, and if you look at all the mums, you know, he came in, he got rid of all the beer sponsors on a junior team because there was underage kids and he made milk the sponsor. So, and then he really focused on school, how he was really going to help with school. And, you know, so he sold his... You know, he again, I think it's manipulation. I mean, I think he groomed, even though he didn't sexually abuse these other families, the other players in there, but he groomed these other families to to gain their trust, to never question him. And you look at a small town like Swift Current, and I think in, in most small towns, if you're going to be somebody like Graham James, you're, you want to operate in a small town because nobody wants to ask what the neighbor's up to. 
you know, there's this, there's this, just this fear. And, and, you know, um, even though they say small towns are close and nosy and everything else, there's still this, you do not talk about stuff like that. You don't even bring it up. And, you know, he, he, he was, he was able to, he was able to, to work and to, I just keep building his armor up of trust and in that community because of the lack of confidence that that community had to ask questions around these types of issues. And it keeps everyone quiet. Everyone's groomed. Everyone believes. Everyone yeah. leans in on this. You have this difficult thing at home. The, the dynamics at home are troubling. So it was just this perfect storm. And I think people forget that sometimes the whole family is pulled into this without realizing because of the, the strength of their manipulation. They're, they're masterful at, at isolation. And that's basically what I felt was I was isolated from everyone. And, you know, I had no connection outside of Graham James. And, and it was all, you know, masterfully done on his part to be able to have full uh, full access to Sheldon and, and, you know, on everything. Money, like I, you know, as a young kid, like, you know, we were supposed to get paid. Well, he controlled, you know, the money, how we got paid. He'd find me, he'd like everything. Like it was just, there was the physical, there, there was the sexual abuse that happened that was awful. And that's the physical side of it. But I think some of the most impactful things were the mental manipulation and the the impact that I was left with and that invisible damage that was in front of me and, you know, that I was feeling and that confusion. And, and uh, you know, I mean, I basically grew up as a teenager wanting to die, you know, passing trees, thinking, you know, do I, do I, do I steer the car into this one or, you know, and that was a common thought for me. So, because I had no idea how to get out of um, the chaotic feelings that I had within, I didn't know how to stop and shut that head off. And I just couldn't process what was happening. I, I just could not connect. I just couldn't get it. And, and, uh, and the fear, living in that fear of who's going to believe me. Right, nobody's going to believe me because here, here's the king of the community, and here's this wild kid that drinks a lot now that never had a drink before I met Graham. But you know, it's like he had a crystal ball. He was Sheldon's savior, so it was just like, you know, it, it's hard to explain, but I, it is. You got to look at the whole picture. I think the actual physical assault, connecting the dots. The dotting the I's and crossing the T's around the physical piece of it is a, is a piece of it. It's a very small piece of it. I think if you look at the whole picture and, and connect those dots, that's what kills people. You know, I can't even tell you how many people I've talked to that have lost a son or daughter, brother, sister, friend, um, finding out after of what was going on in their life. Like, it's real. The impact is real and it, and it kills people. I think it's so important what you've just said because we tend to focus on what physically happened rather than how that experience affected your emotions, how you interacted with other people, how how you felt about yourself and and the world. So it's all this focus on the act rather than mm. all of the repercussions. You wrote very openly, and I think that's the power of this conversation and all of the work that you're doing is 
that so many other people have had this experience but are still trapped in their head in all of that that you've lived with. But you've written very openly about why you didn't speak up, why did you didn't mm-hmm. say anything. And, of course, there's so much consistency in the story, but also it's deeply personal for each person who's experiencing it. What were the reasons why for you? Well, I mean, I wrote the book, Why I Didn't Say Anything, because I feel that that's the biggest question that surrounds not just sexual abuse, but mental health and, you know, all of these, you know, human issues that are so devastating to us that are invisible in most cases is, you know, it's it's two people read a, pick up the newspaper and read Corey Hirsch's Players' Tribune and they're like, wow, why wouldn't he have said something earlier? Like, he could just go talk to, like, why? Why didn't he just say something? You know, and it's and it's a loving parent looking at, you know, somebody that's, you know, their child that's going through this and say, well, why couldn't you just tell me, sweetie? And I think it's the biggest question that I asked myself was, why can't I say anything? And I tried to answer that question as best I could in the book because I feel that our best defense with, you know, sexual abuse or mental health issues that, you know, when people are struggling is, uh, you know, our, our best defense and our best tool is to empower the bystander, right? We need to give people the confidence and the knowledge to be able to to ask questions and, and to know how to listen. And I think that was a skill that I really had to learn was to learn how to listen. I didn't know how to do that. And I used to think that I had to save everybody. When I first disclosed my story, you know, we had like hundreds of thousands of, this is back 25 years ago, disclosures from all over the world. And uh, and they came by mail. <laughs> we didn't have social media back then, but, uh, you know, people were telling their story. And I'll tell you, little did I know back then about vicarious trauma, but, uh, you know, just trying to listen to people and listen to their story and take their pain on almost killed me and uh, and and impacted me significantly because I used to think I had to fix fix them all and I used to have to get them through it. And I think one thing that I've learned after my eight attempts in treatment centers, long-term mental health hospitals, lockdown mental health institutions, jail. The only person that was going to fix Sheldon was Sheldon. I could get good guidance from from experts, but Sheldon had to do the work and and I had to take, you know, I had to take the action and 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 I had to do it. And you know, I I think sometimes um, what I see is that, you know, in our minds we sit and we wait to hear if we want the the doctor to fix us in two sessions. You know, that's kind of, again, you know, what we do is we go to the doctor, they fix, take, you know, fix our broken leg and we're good to go. And I think this is just totally different, even though, you know, I feel it's just, it's just as serious as, you know, any other illness. You know, this is a lot of times life and death situations that we're talking about, you know, around mental health. But it's it's sadly, you know, I've come to realize that I can't save people. I can show up for people. I can help point people to the places to get help. I can guide them, but I can't save them. And I think that what I've also learned is that the only way I can help people is if I walk the walk. I have to walk the walk. I have to show people through walking amends, living amends, that there's a way out. And to me, that took time. You know, I thought when I told my story, when I disclosed back in 1997, 
that I was sexually abused by Graham James. I thought that that it was going to be all over. <laughs> I told my story and I'm good to go. Well, stuff got way more confusing and I became way more vulnerable after my disclosure, even though my life was out of control. Before I disclosed, it became even more so crazy after I disclosed, not knowing how to handle these feelings that I had stuffed in a, in a, in a, uh, in a box for all these years and they're coming out upside down and sideways and odd shaped and I had no idea how to deal with these feelings. I couldn't process it. And, you know, it, it, I probably was at my worst after disclosure than, than even as I was before. That's a powerful statement that you've made, Sheldon, and I, I wonder what provoked you to speak out because you were still playing, but, it, you know, you were in your late 20s, right, when you finally did speak out. What mm-hmm. what led you to speak out, and how did the people around you, whether it's family, friends, players, how did they react? Well, I mean, I was in... I was in Detroit and, uh, you know, obviously my life was, basically my NHL career was, um, you know, what you wanted, and I'll just, I'll just back up a little bit before I got to how I, uh, how I actually got to the point of disclosure. But, you know, I mean, here, here, you know, I'm in the NHL at 20 and, you know, 20 year olds going to close to treatment, Right gets caught, has to go to alcohol and drug treatment. Well, back then they just call it, hey, Kennedy's going to get dried out. Well, then you come back and it's like all the media is in your face and you're like, yep, yeah, I feel good. I was great. Went to treatment. I feel great. It's, I'm good to go. And meanwhile, it was like, what a joke. Like I felt like dying. Like, and I think the shame and the guilt that came with all of that, because I'm a kid from a small town and, you know, they've never had somebody that's made it before and, or whatever, made it, but made, played in the NHL. And I was there and I'm this gong show because what I've learned is that, and as hard as it was, is I had a part in all of this. And my part was, I was set up to live a a certain way, to run from the feelings that, you know, to run from how I felt, to run from myself. And by doing so, you know, I hurt people through it, you know, through my my life with alcohol and drugs and, you know, fear of relationships. I hurt people along my path. A lot of times not intentional. Nonetheless, I did. And I had to own that. And so when I got, I got traded from Detroit to Calgary and I came out of the locker room, and Graham James was was in Calgary. He was back in Calgary coaching the Calgary Hitmen. He was actually given the franchise. He opened up a brand new franchise here in Calgary, a junior hockey franchise that played out of the same building as the Calgary Flames. And so I'd come out of the locker room, and I was married uh, at the time uh, to my wife, Jana, who was pregnant with our daughter, Ryan. And Ryan is now uh, 26. And um, But I remember coming out of the locker room, and I'd see Jana on the one side, pregnant, I'm soon to be father. And on my other side, there's Graham James with all these junior hockey players. And my life was falling apart. Like I, you know, I was in and out of the the psych ward at the hospital, like suicide attempts and stuff. And, you know, and, and just couldn't, I was at my breaking point and, uh, and I, 
you know, just knew that if I will never be the father and the person that I want to be unless I deal with this. And I can't look at this because it's the first time that I'd seen him with other kids. I can't look at this and let it happen. And and I had to do something. I reached out to the Calgary police and and I met with a detective. His name was Detective Brian Bell. And uh you know, there's there's going to be a story of his story coming that's an unreal story. And why we connected, we connected um, because he has his story, which he never told till recently. And it's the first time in my life that I ever felt I was connected and I and somebody heard me and listened to me. And I can't explain it, but I was so petrified because, you know, the media were were all over it. And back then... In 1997, it's not like you told your story and people were already patting you on the back. Good job, Sheldon. No, when I told my story, it was like, you're bringing down the game of hockey and how dare you, son. And uh, and that's the way it was. And people did not know how to have this conversation. They didn't even know, like we didn't even talk about mental health back then, let alone sexual abuse, let alone any of this stuff. And, you know, so it was a no-no. And it wasn't until things shifted when Graham James pled guilty. When he pled guilty, the conversation changed. But, uh, yeah, and that was a long time ago. But, you know, I'll tell you what, to get to that point, it was, uh, yeah, it, I mean, I, I definitely understand suicidal thought because it was basically constant in my life from the time I met Graham till, you know, and still comes every now and then, but at least I know how to... At least I know how to uh, have it lose its power anyway. Sheldon, I'm sitting here and I'm almost in tears because I played in the same league as you, Mike. I played on a great organization. I played for people that took care of me. I played for people that taught me how to be a man. And I'm just sitting here and I feel so fucking guilty because it's not fair. It's not fair, you know? And I'm so sorry. Like, we played against each other. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we had always heard rumblings, but... You know, you just blew it off. Mm-hmm. And I know that some people in Swift Current probably knew. And they mm-hmm. didn't say anything. And my heart is fucking breaking right now because why did I get to play in the place that I did? And you got what you got. And uh, I consider myself lucky, but I'm sitting here and I just, it's like, I don't know why I feel so much guilt over that. And you know how much I love you, bud. You, you know that, mm-hmm. right? And. I wouldn't have been able to share my story without you. And uh, fuck, I, I don't even know what to say about it. But. Well, I think, Corey, like, you know what? And and I appreciate, I, I, you know, I appreciate your voice. And I think, I, you know, you and I chat a lot. And I, and I tell you that, you know, you, you never know who you're going to, who you're going to help. And, you know, and I, I care about you and I care about how you take care of yourself because I know if you do those two things, you're really going to help a lot of people and and you know that. And, and you know, hey, you know, the way I look at this is this is my story. This is this is my path. This, this is my history. This is, this is my journey through life. That's what happened to me. And thank goodness I managed to, to get out of it. And I think, you know, I, I mean, in my first year in the, in the, in the Western Hockey League, I mean, we were on a bus accident where we lost four of our teammates and Graham was our coach. Again, the incident gave him even more power. 
right? But nobody was allowed to get any counseling on our team. So here we are, we're all out away from home. You know, you just lost four friends, teammates, and you're on this horrific crash. We took two weeks off. Nobody was allowed to get any counseling, and then boom, right back to play. Well, you know, a good buddy of ours, I mean, and, you know, Peter Soberlock, I mean, he, you know, he's a sports psych out in, in Thompson River University in Kamloops. He was on that bus. Well, he still deals with anxiety. So I had no idea how the bus accident impacted me because I was dealing with all this other stuff. And I think, like, you know, I think, Corey, like, it's, it's you know, we have a... I don't know, like, it's, I feel that, you know, I was always taught that, you know, the yes, there's, there, you know, you can always take a negative and turn it into a positive. And I think this is one of those situations where, you know, I just, I've never made a decision to say, this is what I'm going to do. This is the work I want to do. I want to work to, as an advocate to help the society better understand and shift policy and, and laws to better react, to understand the impact of, of, you know, the incident that happens, the incident that surrounds this stuff. I think I do this work because people kept bringing me back to this work. They kept asking me to show up, which I feel is probably quite similar to you, right? And, and so here we are. <laughs> you know, here we are 25 years later and, you know, and, uh, and we've, I feel we've, we've made some progress and, but we've got a long ways to go. And, and, uh, and, and I think the big part of it is, is that I care about the most is that I can give people hope that they can smile again, that they can live the life that they, they dream of, that, they can be that person that they always wanted to be because I think when you're struggling with, you know, any form of, of mental illness, mental health issues, addiction, I mean, you never feel that you can get there ever, <laughs> right? Ever. And so it's just trying to bring some hope and trying to bring, you know, because I think we can talk a lot and we do, and it's important that we talk about where, you know, how it, it was terrible, but we also have to talk about the path out, right? We've got to talk about that path out. What is it? What was that like? We got to talk about strong recovery. There's lots of really good people living in strong, good, healthy recovery. That doesn't mean, you know, that, you know, we have life is wonderful and we never have a problem in our, you know, ever again. It just means that in my opinion, in my world, it means that, you know, I've got some tools in my toolbox to deal with life on life's terms when they arise instead of running and hiding because my, I'm filled with fear and anxiety. I mean, I am a fear-based person. I'm petrified of things and fear will, I can get frozen in fear and I can get frozen in worry and, and I act out with anger. So, you know, for me, it's just, you know, and it's about practice. You know, I have to practice this every day to get better. And that's the way I see mental health work or what I struggle with. I have to, if I want to get better at this, I got to practice it. And it has to be a priority in my life on a daily basis. That doesn't mean I spend all day, 
but I need to set my day up. I know what works now. I've been at it for long enough that I know there's little things in my world that set me up for success. When I get away from that stuff, I'm never as good as I was when I was, you know, doing it. And that, you know, I have to keep that front of mind. Sheldon, it's remarkable that you're here. And my God, I'm so glad you are. Much like with Corey, but you had experienced trauma on trauma on trauma, right? You you came from chaos. It was a difficult childhood, then the abuse, then the accident, on and on. And we know that those layers of trauma are impactful. So what it speaks to is your your character, your elite athleticism, your ability to drive forward. You have resilience, and you're obviously building it every day. It's it's remarkable. I wonder if I can take you back for a minute to something I think was really important. People believe or hope when this happens, then I'll be better. I know people who mm. go through lawsuits and, you know, disability claims or or speaking up about some kind of abuse that they've experienced that they think, okay, if I do that, I'll be better. And it's a way of keeping going. But at the same time, it's it's not real for almost anyone. And you said it was actually your your lowest point. Can you talk a bit about that? And I can't imagine the first person, thank God the police officer was remarkable, but who did you talk to first? And mm-hmm. and did that set you up for a better, uh, or I guess yeah. moving forward? Yeah, for sure. I mean, Jana, my, my wife at the time, I just told her, I said, uh, I told her, and she, all she said was, I, I believe you. That's it. That's all she said. And and that's basically all I needed to hear. Again, I didn't need somebody to fly in and save me and come up with all the answers. I didn't need that. I just needed somebody to listen because in my head, I had no idea how to explain this. It was not going to come out perfect. It was not going to come out. It just needed to come out. And... Uh, and 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 I felt so much fear of not being believed, and just that initial "I believe you" was huge. I kept thinking that I was going to wake up and this was all going to go away, and I was going to wake up and it was going to be good. And and uh, you know, I think one thing I learned is I can't think my way into wellness, <laughs> right at all. I have to uh, take action, and and it's all about action. It's all about just you know, just putting one foot in. And I used to say early in recovery, like, you know, take the body and let the mind follow because I would think myself out of getting, you know, doing what was good for me. And But I always knew, you know, in early recovery and I'd go to a meeting or, you know, go to A meetings or whatever. And, and uh, my head's telling me, you don't need to go, right, big guy? <laughs> <laughs> you don't need to go there, big guy. And I'm thinking to myself, I just need to go there, and uh, and I would go. And m- one of the one of the best things that somebody ever told me, and my buddy Dan, and he said, just take the body and let the mind follow. And and you know what? And I and I go there uh, a lot because my head will tell me that I don't need to do this stuff, and it still tells me that. And I've learned that when I can take the body, I feel better, whatever that might be, you know, if I'm taking action around, you know, my 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 mental health or wellness or, you know, just that is a big one for me. But it took me a lot of tries. Like I was, you know, I mean, I started getting in trouble at 16. I mean, it took me a lot of treatment centers. It took me long term. I was in treatment centers for 10 months. I was in treatment centers like 
it, it took a long time. People stuck with me, but I think they stuck with me. But I think probably the most important thing is is they told me that they were done with me too. And, uh, you know, people were sick of Sheldon saying sorry. Like, oh, sorry, oh, sorry, 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 sorry. And, you know, I, I don't have to say sorry anymore unless, you know, I mean, I just need to do the right thing. And usually when I can focus every, trying to do the right thing and be accountable. And one of the, my biggest fears was being accountable, right? Because I was so scared, you know, to really let myself be a part of something. I'll tell you, like, the trauma, one of the biggest things that I struggle with is, is trust and really letting people, really letting people in. I mean, I'm getting better, but it's, uh, yeah, I mean, life, I, you know, I don't want to say that, you know, my life isn't, you know, okay, but I think one of the things that I work on a lot is trying to let people really in. I have this significant amount of fear of being hurt by somebody or something, given all the loss in my life. So it's it can be a lonely place when you don't let people in, <laughs> you know. So I, I'm you know I'm practicing to get to get better at that. It's not the best way to to have great relationships when you don't let people in. But I think you know that comes from the distortion as a kid of, you know, I think my angry dad, who I loved and wanted to follow around, but also the other person that, you know, here comes this, everybody idolized the Western Hockey League coach, and here comes this other adult in my life that hurt me too. And I think it's just a normal way to shut it down. And, you know, I, I look at the data, I mean, we've done over 20,000 child abuse investigations at the Child Advocacy Center. And, you know, I mean, kids kids that are abused, I mean, their, their, impa- their mental health is impacted big time. And, you know, kids that are abused are 30% higher dropout rates in high school, you know, 15 times more likely to attempt, uh, have suicide attempts. I mean, 70% of people in detox and treatment centers have disclosed early childhood abuse. I mean, the list goes on, right? The list goes on. And so I'm no different. I experienced all of that too. Diane, Sheldon had said he was more vulnerable after the disclosure. I might have thought that he would feel a big sigh of relief getting that off of his chest, almost like the chains had dropped off. But he said he he was actually a total mess after. That's actually very, very common. And, you know, I think people think, well, better out than in. You feel some kind of relief by getting this off your chest. But often people have, when they've experienced something as traumatic as this, they push it into this tightly sealed little box in their brain and try to get on with their life. They're still affected by it, but they're trying to keep it sort of tightly sealed in there. And once they unseal it, once they let it loose, they're often not prepared for all of those emotions coming flooding back, all those feelings. So his experience is so very common that this feeling of being completely overwhelmed by an experience that they've tried to to push away. Once that box is opened up, you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube often. Once it's out, you got to try to 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 work through it. And again, I want to come back to this sense of of shame that people feel often as a victim. 
They expose an experience, and they start to face very painful questions from people that they never expected they would they would experience. Sometimes from people that they really they trust, you know, their colleagues or even family members that that would be asking, "Why didn't you say something? What's wrong with you? Why wouldn't you tell us that this was going on?" Or he would never do something like that, and he's going to hear all that at the same time that he's dealing with this box of trauma that's just exploded in his brain, and you can see why it's a it's a horrible time. Diane, you said grooming can mean different things. I had no idea that grooming could involve family members as well. What might grooming look like for others, and what are some of the signs? Grooming is the manipulative behavior, and as Sheldon said so forcefully, people who abuse, like Graham James, they are master manipulators. So it's the the behavior that makes sure that they get and maintain access to the victim. It helps to coerce them into agreeing to the abuse. And I don't mean that they're saying, I'm okay with the abuse. It's just allowing the abuse to happen without screaming from the rooftops. And it reduces their risk of getting caught. So they're they're out there covering all the bases well before the actual abuse starts. And it can happen online. It can happen in person. But as Sheldon, we also talked to Sheldon about, it also looks for individuals who are vulnerable. You're able to isolate them, take them out. And Sheldon used those words. Take them out from their away from their usual supports. Make them feel isolated. Make them feel special. Give them gifts. Give them special treatment, make them feel like they have shared secrets. And that's very much in the beginning, right? It becomes more and more coercive as time goes on and actually and the abuse has started. Make them comfortable with sexual topics, maybe showing them porn, having touching happen that you can excuse, hugs, wrestling, tickling, and when it goes a little bit too far and the the, the child kind of goes, what? Uh, oh, what? Nothing, you know? It's all just a huge manipulation. They're kind, they're charming, they're helpful, they're beyond reproach. And it's not just, it's actually less with the child and even more with the family or the community. That way they're building trust with everyone around so that they can say, what, me? And also, everyone around them is saying, well, he would never do that. What? Well, look at this guy. He's, he's a sweetheart. He's the, the head of the community. He would never touch a child. When someone's doing that, are they seeing how involved the parents are, too, as well? And if the, if the child has anywhere to turn or, and see how open the communication is in the family? Yeah, they see that. They want to look for vulnerabilities. This is why children who are in foster care, who are in marginalized communities where they they are living with chaos at home or don't have parents who are engaged at home, they are the most vulnerable individuals in this circumstance. So what about when someone comes into your home? And I, you know, when I was recruited, the promises of the NHL, the promises of we're going to take care of your boy, you don't have to worry about him, the promises of this kid's a great player, we're going to get him where he needs to be. Is that another form of grooming? Absolutely. He's using this opportunity. He holds all the cards, and he holds that against both Sheldon and Sheldon's family. Everyone wants that for Sheldon, especially Sheldon. 
So he is holding that possibility. And I think, you know, Sheldon talks a lot about everyone focusing on the abuse and not focusing on the torment that was going on inside him. And that, that of course, it's unique for each individual. But I would say universally, when I talk to people who have had this experience, they feel intense guilt and shame. They feel shame. Why did I allow this to happen? Why didn't I do this? Why didn't I do that? They're mortified by what has happened to them. But also they recognize or they feel in retrospect, like Sheldon has, he felt absolutely trapped. He couldn't put his thoughts together and understand what to do. He didn't know what the repercussions would be. Maybe he was going to lose his opportunity in the NHL. He didn't think people would believe him. He was embarrassed by what happened. All of these things kept him captive in his head and ultimately almost led to his death. I've heard of something that's kind of called almost a smear campaign by the person that is the abuser. So they'll start telling lies um, even before what and while they're doing it. Um, is that something that's quite common with an abuser? Again, master manipulators. They know that this. if they get an inkling that this may come out, they start to lay the groundwork for why this couldn't be true, uh, talking about him being unhinged or a, a substance abuser you can't trust, shoring up relationships, being that extra nice, incredible guy, just to lay the groundwork for it's him, not me, he's making it up, uh, he's always been a little this or a little that. It's all manipulation. So Sheldon once said to me, he said, you can't change the abuse. It happened. You can't go back and change that. It all becomes mental health after that. And how would that affect somebody in their everyday life after, of course, something as horrific as what happened to Sheldon happened? We know there are some factors that make it much more likely for an individual to have mental health repercussions after a traumatic event. If it's personal, someone you know is perpetrating something against you, if it's protracted, it's going on and on over a long period of time, if it's violent, if it's sexual. So all of those encapsulate what happens when there's childhood sexual abuse. When when sexual abuse occurs, it's personal, it's often protracted, and it certainly was with Sheldon. And it, it's, it's very, it's, it's sexual, but emotional. It hits all, all of the big flags. So he was highly vulnerable to developing some kind of mental illness, post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, anxiety, substance use, all to manage his symptoms. And then society pushes back, like, let's say you don't come forward for three years or five years. And society in general pushes back that, well, you know, why didn't you come forward? Why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? And and people are, are quick to say, well, I would have, you know, I would have fought back. I would have not let that happen. Why in a situation like Sheldon did it, would it be difficult for someone in that situation to come forward and not fight back at the time? This is a universal problem here is everyone, you know, the— the Monday morning quarterback kind of thing. This is, I would have done this and that. They don't understand, someone who hasn't experienced this, what it's like for your world to be controlled by a master manipulator. 
So he's thinking all of these different things. No one's going to believe me. I'm mortified that this has happened. Why didn't I say or do something? And certainly now he's able to look back and understand the circumstance. He wasn't spoke so well about what was going on and why he felt so trapped in that circumstance. It's very easy to look and say, well, I would have done this and that. But when you're in it, you feel like there's, there's really no way to escape. What role has shame played in your life, and where is that now? Well, I mean, shame's huge, uh, and it's played a, a huge role in my life. And and again, I think it goes back to, you know, it goes back to what happened to me, and what happened to me set me up to live a certain way, running from my feelings, running from myself. And... Uh, and that brought a lot of shame on. Yeah, I played in the NHL, but I mean, you know, I never lifted a weight or rode a bike in my life. I smoked a pack of cigarettes every day, drank like a fish, and did everything else not to be there. And I, somehow I still made it there. But it's shameful as a 20 year old kid playing the NHL talking about going to treatment and coming out in 30 days and, and relapsing. And the microphone's in your face again. And the shame of, you know, not. You know, just my family of, you know, not showing up at birthday parties or my daughter's birthday party and being a parent. You know, I have a 26-year-old daughter. Well, my daughter watched her dad, you know, um, disclose, you know, was part of when I, I rollerbladed across the country. So she saw, you know, the masses amount of people that followed and, and told our stories across this country, coast to coast. And then she had to watch her dad go into treatment for 10 months. And, you know, and I remember I was talking, I said, I can't go to treatment. I have a daughter. I'm going to miss out on these days. If you don't go to treatment, Sheldon, you're never going to have a relationship with your daughter or anybody. And, uh, yeah, I think shame, shame's a huge part of trauma. I keep going back to that and just, you know, just my whole life was shameful. I just was... I was just full of shame, right? And I was full of shame of who I was. I never, you know, I didn't dream about being a kid that's going to treatment, drug and alcohol treatment centers eight times. I wasn't, didn't dream of, of a kid going into a long-term lockdown psych wards. I didn't dream as a kid being, you know, as I grow up, I want to be on suicide watch at the at the hospital shuffling around on Librium with your ass hanging out behind the frickin' gown that they give you. You know, that's not what I dreamed about. But I was that's who I was. And that was and and if I have to be honest about it, um that's what was taking me out. I mean, there was the incident that happened, but it's the incident set me up. And then you've got this, just this spiral of stuff. And you got all these things that just kept, it was like you just kept, you know, it just kept chipping away at that, at that armor until you just, you know, until they break through. And then, you know, uh, but that's what I felt. I just felt, you know, uh, consumed with shame, guilt, fear, anxiety, worry. Worry is a big one. And, uh, you know, not so much today, which is good. And, uh, um, and, and, and anger. And I think anger was a big one for me. Anger was, I just got so full of anxiety that I didn't know how to release it. 
right? And and you know, anger was was a problem for me, and so. Well, we're getting there, step by step, eh? I'm, I'm, I'm going to own anger right this moment, Sheldon. Huh? <laughs> I'm going to own anger right now because it just fills me with rage, honestly, the, because because I've seen shame in so many people that I've, I've worked with and the weight that it carries. on it's To me, I see things very visually, and when someone says shame— in, in the context that you're talking about it, I see this anvil on your back weighing you down and, and try, you're trying to fight through that. And it's so fucking unfair because somebody yeah. screwed with your life. Somebody who was in a position of power pushed you into this situation, and it's so unfair. But I know that everyone who lives through this lives with that shame, and it's misplaced. And I I feel rage for for that. I'm so sorry that you had to live through that, but you are saving lives with what you do. I appreciate those words, and and uh, it is overwhelming sometimes. And I think, you know, I don't know if I can put my finger on one thing that, uh, in particular, I think, I think it's just I needed to just. I needed to break my life down to the lowest common denominator and just start rebuilding little wins at a time. And, you know, if you think about it, like in Canada, they have a they have a recognition called the Order of Canada, which is your highest civilian uh, recognition in the country. And, and anyway, I was honoured with that uh, from the Governor General, David Johnson, and I... You know, and I think the words ring true. It's like I said to I said to mention to David. I said, you know, I said this represents hope because if you look at where I came from, to actually think that I, Sheldon Kennedy, who was like the laughing stock, the drunk, the you know, the the wild child, the you know, the alcohol, drugs, you know, loser, right, um, can actually get to this place. And, and walk through all the naysayers and get to the place that I always knew I could be. I always knew I who I was, but I could never get there. And, and I think finally getting there and to have that acknowledgement, to me, that represents hope for everybody else. And it's not about Sheldon Kennedy getting the Order of Canada. It's about the issues. Nobody, these issues did never had a platform ever before. And and to get, to acknowledge them at that level and to, to offer hope for some that are carrying that anvil of shame, I feel, is huge. And tells me that, you know, the work by so many people, both of you and others, throughout North America and around the world that are that are advocates in this space, we're making a difference. And and that's what's exciting, right? And that's what it's about. And I think, you know, it's it is about the way out, right? It is about showing people the way out. It's about having them follow for a while till they can take their own path. I had to follow. There's been lots of people that have that have helped me, you know, just with the simple things and, you know, that would come out of their way to come pick me up at my house and take me to a, to an AA meeting. Just pick me up and take me, 
right? No questions asked, just come and get me. And I, you know, to me, those are the people I'm grateful for. And that's what recovery is, is people that show up and uh, do those little things like that. I think that's how it works. It's not lost on me that I have two hockey players in front of me right now that both are leaders. Both you came out, Corey, with your OCD at a time when people were not talking about mental illness. Sheldon, you came out when people were not talking about abuse at all. And both of you endured so much. And and you are beacons of hope to me, honestly, that this can change. Thank well, thanks for saying that, Diane. And um Sheldon, I, Sheldon's one of my good friends, and I, I, I tell people I, I idolize him because I look up to him. Um, and the, I just just listening, and I remember Shelley, maybe you do too. I remember you'd come out, you know, you come out of the locker room in front of twenty thousand people, you know, screaming and cheering, and and I would skate around, and I'd just be like, if these people only knew, if they only knew, yep. it. and I felt like so, I didn't feel like a man. I just, mm-hmm. I didn't, I felt less than everybody else, you know, and I'd be like, why are these people cheering for me? And you're right, the guilt, the shame, I didn't know what was going on. Um, you know, and then your teammates, like your teammates look at you like, what the hell's wrong with this guy? He's just, you know, a bad teammate. And mm-hmm. then when I came out with my stuff, it was almost an apology to my teammates too for why I was the way I was. And that's, a long convoluted question, but I want to know if you felt the same way. Yeah, well, I can relate to to what you just explained, Corey, and skating around the ice and just uh, never feeling present ever and always felt like I didn't belong. You know what's interesting? I'll tell you a little story about uh, just recently I was down at the general manager's meetings and uh, the NHL general manager's meetings and we were talking about the Respect Hockey Initiative around all these issues, right? And uh, I got a chance to see some old teammates and nobody, you know, because I haven't, I mean, I've worked in the game of hockey, not at the NHL level, but basically, you know, behind the scenes at Hockey Canada and stuff. I mean, we train mandatory training for every coach across this country around these issues. But um, but anyway, I got to see a bunch of my ex-teammates that I played with and I hadn't seen them. They, they had only met the old Sheldon <laughs> Right. And most of the time in the States, like they, you know, they didn't, you don't have a lot. I mean, they're consumed by the game and you don't really see what's going on and that. And so I got to, you know, I chatted with Irishman and Sackick and, you know, I got to chat with a bunch of the, bunch of these guys. And it was just, it was so good to have that conversation and be in the place, be me not be somebody that was consumed with what happened to me, just be me. And to be able to to look at them and just have them see that you're doing okay, I think Corey was huge. And, and just their care, you know, they do care and they did care. And in all fairness to them, nobody knew what to do. <laughs> nobody knew how to deal with these issues. And that's the whole point of what we're trying to do is we, we need to build a confidence within organizations and within communities around all forms of mental illness, mental health, all forms of you know, discrimination, abuse, uh, inclusion issues, like all of that. And it was said to me, and it's like, we need help. You know, it's not that people don't want to do the right thing. It's that they don't know how to do it. And so to me, you know, if we look at the three of us having a chat right now, I mean, 
you know, that's our job. Our job is to teach, right? You know, find a way out and teach. And, uh, you know, I, I get a lot of gratitude in the fact that we can just sit and, and have open conversations as we are here because that's what it's about. And I think that's the gift that we're given when we start working on on healing uh, from what we're struggling with, you know, whether it be your OCD, uh, Corey, or, you know, my Heinz 57 mash of things. <laughs> you know, I mean, we learn to talk and we learn to have a conversation and we, we learn how to do that. And I think that that's a taught skill. I didn't go to my first counseling session and, you know, and can speak the way I speak today about feelings and all of this stuff. I mean, it, it takes time and it takes practice. And I think we've been given that gift. And I think we need to we need to create a structure to allow others to be able to have these types of conversations also, because it's not just what's happening at the NHL. It's like, what are people bringing in to the game? What are, what are people bringing into the workplace? And, and how are we in a position to make sure that we support them with whatever they, wh- whoever they are uh, and everything that, that they represent? So, But what you said, Sheldon, about how you were having this sense of having to save people and taking on yeah. their stories, and I, I, it's something that I have, and I have to as a psychiatrist, not carry everything around with me because I'd be absolutely useless. But it, it's something you have to learn, how mm-hmm. I have to have self-compassion, but I also have to take care of myself in order to be able to take care of everyone else. You know, you put your mask on first, your oxygen mask on first, and it's hard when you're so vulnerable, as Corey still is in his day-to-day challenges, and I'm sure you mm-hmm. still have those. Well, in fact, that's what I wanted to ask you about, was you said thoughts of suicide are still there, are still a challenge. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, I mean, that's funny, eh? Like, I was going so hard, and and I was running hard. We were not running hard. I was working, and I was burnt out, and I was going. And uh, and and I, you know, and one thing I learned, like, I just couldn't, I kept, like, this just constant thought. And it hadn't been, it had not crept in for a long time. And... Uh, and it was there and it was present and it kept picking up steam every day. And I'm like, what's this? You know, I'm going to wake up tomorrow. It'll be gone. Wake up. And finally I had to address it. And so it was a good teaching for me. You know, like once I voiced it in a safe place, once I could be honest with it, it lost all its power. And so that's what I've learned. And and so, you know, the longer I sit in it, the more steam it picks up. You know, and as, as the sooner I can voice it, the less steam it gets. So, you know, for me, I think it doesn't, they're different than they used to be. I mean, there used to be almost a sense of um, calmness because I knew that was my way out of the crazy. But now it's not that way. It's the, It makes me really look at where I'm at. What am I doing? What's my day-to-day? You know, I just got to reevaluate where am I today? And I think most of the time it's it's when I get running so hard that I forget to take care of myself and do the little things. And and it creeps in. So it's just a good reminder for me that, you know, we're, we're not going away. And, uh, you know, and I think that, you know, the scars that last a lifetime that we talk about and I've heard forever that we never really understood, I think, is exactly what I deal with today. 
the scars that last a lifetime. That's that's what I'm dealing with, and and they will be here for a lifetime. There's no doubt. It's it's shifted, and you know I feel that I've been built differently. What I know today about the impacts of trauma, early early childhood brain development. I mean all that stuff, right? Like like I there's no doubt that um, I am who I am, how I've been built, and uh, and that's okay. The key with that is that. Uh, I have to live a different way than than some others that maybe weren't built the way I was built. But there's some things that are critical to my well-being and the best part is is that you know I can I can be happy because I lived the majority of my younger days not feeling happy and not feeling like I belonged and worried about what people were saying and that anvil of shame. And so what I know today is that, you know, I can be happy and that's a good thing. You said something that I think is so important about suicidal thoughts that in the past they almost came as a sense of relief. And the, as mm-hmm. a psychiatrist, that's the scariest thing for me. When a patient, mm-hmm. well, first of all, I'm relieved when someone tells me that they're having those feelings. But when a person is at, the, at that point of, okay, whew, they almost feel less yeah. anxious because I have this option. It shows how far you've come that the thoughts can come and now they're scary. When you have a a, an, a suicidal thought, it's, hey, what's going on? But it shows where you were, that this was this was my out. Yeah. And the shame that came with voicing it. Like, here I am, advocate out in front of doing all this work, you know, public facing the media and so forth and whatever. Meanwhile, I feel like freaking killing myself. <laughs> but that's what <laughs> you makes know? you powerful, that you're real, yeah. right? Because if yeah. you're perfect and you're yeah. not who you are, because let's face it, trauma ain't perfect. <laughs> Surviving this yeah. does not lead to perfection. There's no such thing as that. And I think that's why people react to you, because you're real. Mm. Yeah, well, um, it was real. Yeah, I probably I probably went about eight months without saying anything about it because I just was, and it just kept and it got to the point. And I remember, and and it was it was to the time. Well, I was in an A meeting, and I would go to my morning, you know, my Saturday morning meeting, and I just and I said it, and uh, and I had not had that thought since. And it's not that simple, I don't think, for everyone, but to me, it was. And so, you know, what's the lesson learned? I need to voice it. If I feel that way, the sooner I voice it, the sooner it's going to go away. And uh, and I was able to process it, right? I was able to process it. And and so, you know, it's just, it, I think it's part of trauma, right? It's just, it's it's who I am. And, you know, I have a little three and a half year old, eh? Like, I got a little guy, so I get a second kick at the cat here. Like, so it's awesome. And, you know, I'll tell you what, what a gift. And I'll, I'll just talk a little bit about this because, you know, I've had to do a lot of work with my daughter to mend that relationship of 26 years, a lot. You know, she had a lot of her own trauma watching her dad fall on his face in recovery a few times and then watching her dad fight his way out of you know, trying to fight his way through recovery and find, you know, just fighting it because it it's tough, like early recovery. And 
and and you know and and fear and just so scared that I'm going to fail at recovery too because I failed at everything else in my bloody life, right? And 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 you know she saw that and it impacted her and you know we've had to spend a lot of time her and I and I had to hear how I hurt her, you know, and how you know just me here I am here I am trying to save my life and be the best dad that I can. Meanwhile, I'm, you know, I'm impacting her as she's watching me fight through all these crazy feelings and fears and anger. And even though in my mind, I'm not directing anything, all of this, any of this to her, she's seeing it and it's, and it's, you know, and it's, it's impacting her and it's scaring her. And, you know, we have a, we have a very good relationship today, um, but it's funny how life goes. Like I'm able to have get another kick at the cat, and hence the reason why I took a little bit of a step back. Because what a gift this is to be able to, you know, be a parent in the mindset that I'm in today, uh, to 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 be better than I was, uh, you know, when Ryan was that that age, and and you know that's huge for me. Because talk about shame, you know, what a shameful father I was because of uh, things I was struggling with and carrying that with me. And But again, miracles do happen. <laughs> I was just chatting with Ryan yesterday and, you know, we, we have a very good relationship and it's taken a lot of work. So hope is alive and well. Diane, you and Sheldon talked a lot about shame. Why is it that when you're a victim of something horrific like this, that you can feel this totally misplaced feeling? Well, I think self-blame is where that shame comes from. You haven't reached your goals. You haven't taken advantage of these gifts. Then there's the stigma of struggling with your mental health, having a mental illness, being institutionalized, having a substance use problem. All of this, however, is built on this foundation of shame from being abused. And that is the misplaced part of this. The The foundation is that somehow you are responsible for your abuse, and then you have this cascade of shame that continues from there. He also talks about feeling anger and that feels perfectly placed. That anger, I think, it comes from um, having these emotions that he can't deal with. And lots of people, when they're overwhelmed with emotions, the only way they know how to deal with it is to express their feelings through anger. Men particularly tend to tend to do that. And you can imagine the sadness, the hurt, the shame, the anxiety that he described, all of that, he's lashing out with anger because that's the only way he knows how to handle it. Now, why does the victim blame themselves? How does, that, how does that even happen? Because we tie, and this is especially the case with a sexual assault. It's embarrassing. It's something I did. It's the dress that I wore or it's the, the fact that I let him do it to me those several times and somehow, or for a man, I got an erection during it. That must have mean I enjoyed it. This is ridiculous. It's wrong. But you can see in a young brain going, well, what is, does that mean that I, did I lead him on? Did I do something? Rather than 
that person did something to me that I asked them not to do, I told them not to do, I did not want to happen. This is what we have to change. The person who is wrong is the perpetrator, not the victim. On the flip side, Sheldon also talked about taking accountability for certain things. How important and what role does that aspect have in healing? I think it's important to recognize what is your responsibility. You are not responsible for someone choosing to sexually abuse you, but what are you responsible for? And Sheldon talks about making some choices that he's not proud of, that he's not happy about, and all of those were predicated on the fact that he had experienced sexual abuse. So there are mitigating factors here, but his sense of having control over his life, being able to control himself, remember, we can only control us, we can't control anyone else, part of of feeling in control, again, is taking responsibility for your own choices. Fair. What's fair for you to take responsibility for? You can't take responsibility for the fact that you were abused, but maybe some of the choices you made, despite that abuse, you take responsibility for, and it helps you to feel like you have control again in your life. That's a fascinating thing because my article in the Players' Tribune was an apology, in a way, about the things that happened. And and obviously this is quite different than what happened with Sheldon, but after it was more the repair of relationships with people that didn't quite understand why I did some of the things I did, that kind of lifted the chains off. And do you think that that's possible that that maybe happened with Sheldon as well? I always try to look through the lens of someone who's behaving in a manner that doesn't seem consistent with what I know of them, what their abilities are, what's going on, what's happening. And finding that empathy, finding that compassion for another person helps me to be happier because I don't look at someone and think, they're awful. Why are they behaving like that? I think, what is happening with them that is causing them to behave this way? I know it sounds like you're doing that for someone else, but I actually do it for me too. I want to look for a reason for a positive about that person rather than dwelling on the negative. And, you know, you apologize for relationships, but I know what was going in, on in your brain and what was happening at that time. And I feel like you take responsibility for your behavior, some of the choices you made, but you didn't ask to have OCD and Sheldon did not ask to be sexually abused. And those were foundational in leading to some of those behaviors. That's a sign that something's going on. They're not a drunk. They're not a drug addict. They're not a junkie. Something has happened. Something has gone on in that person's life. Like You don't just wake up one day and choose to be an alcoholic or, or whatever. Well, they may be those things. They may be a well, drunk yeah. or a drug addict, but why? Why yes. did they end up there? And a lot of time, you find out that there is abuse. There is neglect. There is chaos. There's something in the background that underlies that. And that, I hope, gives people some compassion when they're dealing with that person. I get asked a lot, Sheldon, if the game did this to me, if hockey did this to me. And I always tell people the actual game saved me. It gave me something to look forward to. It gave me on the ice. I could just focus or just just play. 
But I don't know if you feel the same way that I did, where the actual game itself and your teammates really, really saved me, like like happened to me. Yeah, I mean, that's probably a tough question for you because yeah, I understand. Well, no, I, I, I you know, I, I know exactly what you're saying, Corey, and I, and I, I, I believe that, and I feel that, but yet I also feel that. Graham James was able was able to operate in a hockey system for a long, long time without the adults in in the in the room, if you may, taking action against him. And you know, so they allowed him to to hurt a lot of people. So, um, you know, I think we've we've worked, we've done a lot of work in the game. I love the game. I love. It's not that I hate the game of hockey, but I feel that. When there's something that's consistent that keeps coming up consistently, and the word systemic comes up consistently in the game of hockey, and if I look at the system, I don't think it's so much the individuals in the game. You know, I mean, obviously Graham James was an individual, but the system allowed him to operate for as long as he did. And I think, you know, when we look and really delve into systemic, that builds a culture and I think hockey is a culture of compliance or not compliance but uh, they conform right like it's just we just get in line and you know we don't really talk about anything in depth and I think um, we don't really st- step outside the box and and that's not a slam on any person it's just the system and that's the systemic nature of I believe the game of hockey now do I feel that there's a uh, do I feel that there's a willingness and an and an urgency to to make the culture better? Yes, absolutely, and I think that's happening. And I think ultimately, I think you know where we need to get to is if I look at your situation and I look at my situation and I look at other people's situations and you know in whatever sport it is, I mean. One of the skills that we lack, or I lacked, that we thought we couldn't have was our ability to have a conversation around these issues. And it's not just about what's happening to me, and it's not just about what's happening in the game of hockey. It's it's about what's happened to people before they got into the game of hockey. Well, who's What issues are they bringing into the locker room? What is everything that they're bringing? And if you take away any of the human issues and you just look at the anxiety and the stress that technology brings or you, bring, you look at the anxiety and the stress that, you know, their 18 coaches from outside of their team, you know, are bringing. And, you know, the game itself, I think, can be that safe place for you know, those involved, but I think we need to embed a structure that allows for the practice of conversations. And if we can build that structure, I mean, we can we can put, you know, whatever topic we want on the table, but I feel we need to have that structure. And I think that's going to benefit, you know, players, coaches, general managers, and we're going to make teams better because, I mean, you know, we're a game of communication. And if we're not practicing communication as we are the power play, we're not going to be very good at it. Did you ever get joy from the game? Was it was it ever a place for good for you before all of this started? Well, you know it's so funny, eh? Like, yeah, for sure. Before I met Graham James, you know, I used to love playing the game. I dreamt about scoring. I had a Bobby Orr lunch kit. I'd dream about scoring a game-winning goal on Corey Hirsch in Game Seven <laughs> of the Stanley Cup Finals. 
and then I met Graham, so that all changed. But that said, I do I've done more work in the game of hockey for the last 25 years than I ever did as a player. Like and you know, behind the scenes and so you know, I'm I want to help make the game even better. And I say that even better. You know, if we want to, you know, deep dive into every organization, I mean, you know, we can find good and we can find bad and and I think to me we always have to stay open-minded to growth. We always have to stay open-minded to be better. And I think these are issues that we cannot be silent on and they're going to go away anymore. Like, that's the way we dealt with it when I first told my story in 97. That's not the way we deal with it today. I mean, we there's an expectation of society. There's an expectation of people that we need to be transparent. We need to be open. We need to be honest. We have to have a plan. And I think that, you know, dealing with mental health issues or all forms of respect that fall under, you know, the issues of the word respect, I mean, discrimination, abuse, I mean, these need to be embedded in the values of your organization and they need to be practiced on a, on a daily basis. And, and, and that doesn't mean we're going to have a huddle and we're going to talk. That just means that we need to embed it in, in in our day-to-day work and how that looks, you know, in your organization. And it needs to be a priority. I mean, if you think about it, you know, probably my age group, I mean, I'm early 50s. So it's, uh, I would have never heard about, I would have never heard about mental health issues or child abuse issues unless, you know, it happened to me growing up. But you look at our young people. I mean, you know, we've educated millions of kids in schools on these issues for years Years. I mean, there's so much, they're in a place where these issues don't scare them. They can have these conversations. So our organizations, and when we talk about systemic, we need to be able to get the organization to a place that's up to speed with the people that are coming into it. I mean, the young people that we're inviting in and we're bringing in, they're there, but the organization is not. And to me, you know, and all of a sudden they, and so, you know, I mean, it, this becomes recruitment and retention, you know, this, that's where these issues have come to. And that's a big deal, right? That's a big deal. This is about recruitment and retention. And, and, and this is about, you know, building a workplace. And I believe hockey and the NHL is a workplace, um, building a workplace that, that is, uh, open and honest. And, and these are prioritized issues within that organization. And, and if you, if you're not, people aren't signing up. When you look back at your career, like I, I look at it now and at the time I didn't, as, as you said, not feeling present in a way and just trying to get through every day. But I look at it now, Sheldon, I made the fucking NHL with two hands behind my back, right? <laughs> Playing against yeah. guys with aces and and we all had struggles. Yeah. But when you look back now, are you are you proud of it? Like is that is that kind of how you feel when you look back at it? <sighs> you know, yeah. that's a good you know, it's a it's a really good question, Corey, because I get asked this a lot. And I don't know how to react. I don't know how to react to my NHL career because my NHL career comes with a lot of shame because I was never the best that I that I could be and I and I it just I just felt like a failure and uh you know so like scoring a goal like I just I I don't I try and sometimes I answered it because I felt I had to but I think if I'm going to be totally honest about it I really struggle getting excited about my first NHL goal um 
I think when I look at my NHL career, that was probably one of the things that I had to, that was one of the healing points that I had to deal with the most was because I had the love of the game stolen from me. And I played at that level, which is a good feat, um, which is a lot of kids' dreams. So I don't not taken away from that. But I also know that I could have been a lot better. And and who I was and, you know, as I was still playing my cards out, you know, I wasn't proud of who I was. And I wasn't proud of my NHL career because my NHL career consisted of treatment centers, long-term mental health hospitals. I mean, that's what it was. I mean, if you go back and look at some of the news articles, it was Kennedy was, you know, arrested again or Kennedy in treatment center again. And it just, that's what it was. And I, and it just, it, I just was very ashamed of it. And, um, but that said, if I didn't play in the NHL, I couldn't be proud of the work that we do in the game today. And that's, that's where my, when I feel anger about what you're saying, it's because it was just so unfair to have that stolen from you because you did have a gift and you, you reached this pinnacle that so many people, it's their, their wish in life to get to the NHL. It feels so unfair. So I imagine that's been a big part of you coming through this is actually being able to find a place where you you can see some good on the other side, that it gave you this platform and this opportunity to help others. But I'm, I'm, I'm very sorry that you had to endure all this to get to this point. Yeah, well, thank you. And, you know, it's, it is, I work with many great people in the game and uh, and there's lots of people that care deeply about these issues. I, I see it on a day-to-day basis. And and I think the key is, is there's an open-mindedness to get better in this space. And that's that's all we can ask. But I mean, for 25 years, I've been working in the game, right? I've, been, I've worked with great people in the game and, and we've all worked together to make it better. And it's not just been Sheldon. There's been, you know, Sheldon can tell a story and Sheldon can knock on the door and Sheldon can come up with good ideas, but it takes strong leadership within hockey organizations to say, yeah, we're going to do this. We're going to make mandatory training for every coach, every parent in our organization across this country, or you can't play. This is going to be a core value of the game. And that takes leadership. And that's what's happened over 25 years. So I'm proud of that. I think when we stop growing within organizations, then, you know, I don't want to say we're dead, but I mean, we're, you know, we're done. And, you know, it's got to be a constant growth. And this is one of the areas that I think needs the most growth. Sheldon, so much of what you've said to me has been inspirational. And I'm interested in where you think your greatest achievement has come from? Where? What are you most proud of? Well, my recovery, there's no doubt. And and that is, you know, it's, that's, that's it. You know, I mean, if I don't take care of myself, I don't have, you know, I can't help others and I can't do what we do. And, and uh, that's just the facts. And so, you know, I, I, I really can't, say much more than that. I mean, that is, that's what I'm most proud of and what I cherish the most and what I try to make a priority on a day-to-day basis. Thank you so much for, for sharing so openly with us. Far fewer people can say that they have been awarded the um, Order of Canada. 
which is an incredible honor. And even fewer still can know that they're having an impact so deeply on millions of people as you have. So you're actually beyond the NHL, making the NHL, you're having a tremendous impact on people in the most personal way. So thank you. Thank you, Sheldon. Yeah. Well, and thank you, thank you both for doing what you're doing and having these conversations. This is not easy. I can show up and we can have a chat for an episode, but uh, you do this time and time again, and I, I appreciate that. It takes a lot of uh, courage and it takes a lot of uh, strength and, and self-care. So I, I appreciate you you doing this. It's going to help people, there's no doubt. And I think, and I've mentioned this to you, Corey, and I'm sure you, you know this, Diane, already, but it's you, you'll never know who you're going to reach. <laughs> 